Play is the thing. Play is pervasive. It is a quintessential activity. Play pokes through and manifests itself in a myriad forms, which if we fail to think about play, it means eliminating or subtracting a significant swath of human behavior, whether personally, communally, or historically, from deeper theological reflection. Consider how throughout the life cycle we learn to play roles, act, pretend, to play house, mommy, daddy, to play music, trumpet, guitar, piano, to play with words and ideas, puns, metaphors, rhymes, tongue twisters, and of course, to play ball. Shortly after 9-11, Stuart Brown, a contemporary American psychiatrist who studies play, documented how the remembrances of play dominated the obituaries of those who lost their lives on 9-11. What people remember the most about their loved ones were play moments or play activities seen in headlines such as a spitball shooting executive, a Frank Zappa fan, that probably needs to be contextualized, a lover of laughter. Brown saw how play was like a joyful thread running through, weaving, and binding memories and lives together emotionally. Let us take a moment to get immersed in how scripture imagines and conceives of play. Though by no means does Proverbs attempt or envision a comprehensive theology of play. However, it does start with God, the creator, who plays. Who some refer to as Deus Ludens, as the reason for human play. We play because God plays. Proverbs chapter 8 begins with Lady Wisdom standing in the public sphere, in the city, on the heights, in the streets, at the gates, inviting and beckoning all humans to accept and receive her call. Wisdom is virtually everywhere, speaking to everyone with ears to hear. In verses 22 to 36, wisdom is personified as a playful partner of God's, delightfully breaking into a cadence of song and dance before God and in this earth. Now, when comparing Proverbs to Genesis 1 through 2, we see in Genesis an anonymous narrator revealing God's creative activity with a work-rest rhythm. While in Proverbs 8, we have wisdom as an eyewitness, literally first person, imagining creation as a joyful activity of child's play. The late Old Testament wisdom scholar Samuel Terrian calls this section the play of wisdom. For wisdom communicates in play the presence of God to humankind. Three basic movements in this passage give coherence to wisdom's revelation. The first movement in verses 22 to 29 is wisdom's revelation on what she saw. After wisdom is created, verse 22, wisdom appears alongside the Lord at creation where she watches and observes Yahweh's sovereign act of making and creating everything. At this point, wisdom's role is not that of an active player, but that of being, seeing, and marveling at the astonishing freedom and creativity of her Lord. Theologically, wisdom reveals that God and God alone is the subject or artisan of everything that exists. Without God, nothing. With God, everything. This work of creation was not necessary, neither logically nor metaphysically, nor morally obligatory. Nothing inwardly or externally compelled God, but it was completely voluntary and it was entirely free. Creativity and freedom are the conditions for play. 
Jürgen Moltmann, in his theology of play, argues that the activity of play symbolically expresses the creation of God, who freely and meaningfully made this world according to his good pleasure, according to his good will, according to his glory. G.K. Testerton, similarly in orthodoxy, compared the act of creation to God at play. As only Chesterton can, he ponders the intricacies of creation like the rising of the sun. Chesterton imagined that God says to himself, do it again to the sun and do it again to the moon. Because he has the eternal appetite of a child to delight in playing. He remarks that because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until nearly dead. Chesterton underscores that God is not playless, for he is infinitely played full and full of happy glory. The theological significance of freedom and creativity are essential to our notion of human play. Inherent in the idea of play is that unlike work, we don't have to do it. We freely choose to play. Play like creation cannot be forced. If we are commanded to play, then in essence, we are no longer playing. When parents chide their children to go outside and play, this command ironically vitiates the meaning of play. Unfortunately, many children today are under the duress of mom and dad's wishes when it comes to why they even play sports. Play is often perverted and instrumentalized by adults whose performance-based world of work encroaches on their children's unbridled joy of creative, spontaneous, free play. Today in youth sports, there's a 70% burnout rate because youth feel it is their duty to play for their parents. They straddle their children's play with their own workaday burdens and end up replacing their frustrations. On my more wistful days, this problem has me wonder. Whatever happened to backyard games, unsupervised by parents, unorganized by AAU, Pop Warner, Boys and Girls Clubs, the YMCA, and UIL, in which youth freely consented to play? The beauty of play, however, is not that it's merely free, but it's also freeing. When we step into the magical boundary or circle of play, we turn aside from the restraints and tensions of the workaday world and enter this liminal space, this interlude. Some people refer to it as a parenthesis, where we are free to imagine multiple as-if scenarios. That is, limitless possibilities are created in this make-believe world with a plethora of results and surprise responses awaiting it's players. Serendipity. You can play peekaboo multiple ways. Peekaboo. 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 You can dribble a basketball backwards and forwards, side to side, under your legs, around your back. You can swim on your belly, underwater, holding your breath, opening and closing your eyes. What is the theological import? Because play opens up nearly unlimited possibilities, play's alternative world, the parentheses, can foster in us the sensibilities to imagine a kingdom worldview in which Paul says God can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. We experience a foretaste of that reality in, in the imaginative free dimensions of play. Jesus did say, unless you return to square one and start over like children, you're not even going to get to look at the kingdom, let alone get in. 
In the first movement, wisdom observes the necessary conditions for play. In verses 30 to 31, the second movement is wisdom's playful partnership. She identifies her role as a player, if not a co-player, verses 29 to 31, beside God through the acts of creation. Tripper Longman observes, wisdom is like a child sporting in a new environment. This scene is shot through with the image of an active youngster who, upon experiencing something for the first time, rejoices, laughs, and celebrates as only a child can. Two times in these two verses, the author uses a Hebrew word for play to characterize the double aspect of wisdom's activity. In verse 30, she plays with a father, delighting at being at his side. In verse 31, wisdom plays with humanity and the world. Wisdom reveals the secrets of play. First, fundamental to the structure of play is the delight and sheer fun of playing. Delight comes not from what play does or produces, but because of what play is. Wisdom's play in this passage puts us in touch with the joys and pleasures that are intrinsic to God's good creation. In playing, wisdom wholeheartedly agrees with God's pronouncement that creation is good, very good. In fact, it would be, could be said that wisdom relishes what the Lord says about creation in the first part of Genesis 2.9, where we read that what God made was pleasing to the eye. But strangely, wisdom is silent about whether it was good for something. Wisdom, instead, in its play, has a good time, period. She puts the value on beauty and delight, not on what something is good for. Play theorists refer to this as the autotelic nature of play, the self-purpose, right? This simply means that the point of play is internal and the reward is itself. Play's reward comes from the deep satisfaction of losing ourselves in our play world. Self-abandonment, March Madness for all its flaws, still has the power to eerily dramatize this transcendent aspect of play, which momentarily can overtake us, and for the athletes themselves, they occasionally experience what's referred to as the flow and in the zone. That is not to say that play does not have benefits, but that is not its primary focus. Play resists pragmatism. Play is not good and true simply because it works. From early on, the school of life instructs and trains us that such a non-utilitarian attitude or stance toward life is impracticable at best and a waste of time at worst. We go to school to earn good grades, to score well in the ACT, to enroll in a quality college, to acquire how-to knowledge and skills so that we're competent, prepared for our career in college, to make money. We eat for health reasons. We exercise to work out, to look good, to discipline ourselves. That makes me tired just to read that. This functional mentality can easily overwrite the extravagant and gratuitous nature of play that wisdom herself discovered alongside God in creation. However, if we accept and receive genuine play as a gift, it can re-enchant our world with satisfying beauty and delight. We can pick up a Fuji apple and note its sensory attractiveness. We can be mesmerized by LeBron's basketball prowess and resolve. We can delight in the hints of grapefruit in a local IPA. We can actually study and read, not for homework, God forbid, but because of the inherent joy of discovering the architecture of St. Augustine's argument and thought world. At least that's what Dr. Wilhite would want you to believe. Growing up, my father made Sunday meals a culinary art. 
He would spend hours studying cookbooks in order to know which dishes would aesthetically enhance the, co- the, the, the colors and flavor the taste and aromas of others. When we finally sat down to partake of these feasts, they were festive celebrations with plenty of explanations filled with oohs and ahs. My brother Steve and I would often do our Andy Griffith impersonations, which around the dinner table went something like this. Mmm, 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 mmm. That is good food. Not Aunt B, but Dad. This sure, and looking back, I see this weekly ritual as formative for my own outlook on play. For I learned how to appreciate such sensual pleasures which abound when sharing a lavish meal together. If play is not justified by what it accomplishes, the trajectory of this outlook has significance theologically. For example, this means that discipleship is good simply because, well, the words are following Christ as Lord and Savior and not for how it might make me a better leader in my community. Worship itself is arguably the oldest form of play known to humankind. The point of worship like play is its own reward. And when we worship, we forget about ourselves and surrender to and experience God. Practical theologian Kenda Creasy Dean in her book, Practicing Passion, singles out play as a transcendent practice, which she holds as one of youth ministry's most important responsibilities. A playful spirit for her intersects worship. She says, quote, The existential surrender and non-defensiveness of playful worship engenders the kind of authenticity that adolescents prize. For when we play, our defenses are down. A second secret of play is wisdom's playfulness, which illustrates the mutuality of play. One scholar comments, that wisdom is the vivacious playmate of God and man with heaven and earth as her playground. Practically, play involves players who play with something or someone. This makes sense why play for children often involves toys or the converting of an instrument like a spatula, a pot, dad's necktie, or a cardboard box into a toy. Deep play is interdependent and interactive just as it is described here with wisdom, God, and the world. Play for humans creates strong social bonds, its power creates community, and enriches our sense of belonging, togetherness. In the coming kingdom, Zechariah 8.5 depicts the social dimension of play as an anticipated end in which, quote, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. The peaceable kingdom of heaven itself is pictured as a place of play, in which a similar kind of rejoicing before God will occur in the new creation, just as it did in Proverbs 8 when wisdom played before God at creation. In verses 32 to 36, the third and final movement consists of wisdom inviting or calling others to embrace her ways. Wisdom is back on the street, issuing in her final plea to bring the delights of play to bear on all that we do in life. Here she does extol the positive benefits of following her ways, which are life and favor from the Lord, while contrasting these to negative consequences for not following her ways. In Shakespeare's play, in Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet, a specter confronts Prince Hamlet with some troubling news that King Claudius, his uncle, murdered his father. Hamlet memorably utters the epigraph, The play's the thing. What's the thing? Hamlet writes and presents this play as a means to elicit visible proof that Claudius did indeed murder his uncle. 
Hamlet smuggles in a few powerful lines into his play about regicide, waiting to see whether Claudius cringes, indicating a guilty conscience. In this literary dramatic work, the theatrical world of play communicates and reveals something beyond itself. Likewise, wisdom's dramatic call to play points beyond the Old Testament, for the Christian scriptures connect wisdom with Jesus. This association is apparent in Colossians chapter 1 and 2, which describes Jesus as the fullness of all wisdom who partnered with God to create everything. The Greek fathers unabashedly understood this relationship between the father and the son as that of a child who proceeds everlastingly from the father, despite the doctrinal controversies of Arius and his followers who overread and pressed all the literal details of Proverbs 8 to Jesus. German philosopher and master of suspicion, Friedrich Nietzsche, acerbically criticized and observed how Christians in his day had a negative stance toward life. He saw them as having no joy, and he communicated in one of his books through one of his characters, Zarathustra, that should he ever come to believe in God, he would only believe in a God who danced. True at seminary, are we delighting and celebrating the innumerable forms of play in such a manner that authentically witnesses to our God who undeniably plays and dances, answering such skeptics who long for what is primordial to humans. We play because God plays.